You may be seated. Well, our text this morning will be from Acts chapter 2, if you'll take a copy of the scriptures and turn there. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read in our hearing verses 22 through 36. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. The Apostle Peter declares, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are the God of your word, and so we would ask in the name of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit would indeed be poured out upon us this morning. We pray that he would open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that he would open our understanding, that he would enable our will, that we may understand your word, that we may see the glory of your providence, and that we would grasp a hold of the Christ of providence to the salvation of our souls. We would ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, my dad always had this joke that he would do. I would get really excited about something, or my mom or my sister would get really excited about something. And we would all be getting really excited about it together. And we would look at my dad and want him to be excited with us. And he would just kind of look at us and shrug and go, eh, it's all right. And we would look at him and say, well, why aren't you excited, Dad? And then he would laugh and he'd say, oh, I'm just playing. Yes, I'm excited. Well, my dad's joke is the unbeliever's serious attitude to providence. But for the saint, the saint confesses along with the psalmist, great are the works of the Lord. They are sought by all who delight in them. 
And that's what we are doing in this sermon series on the doctrine of God's providence. In the first sermon, we looked at the essentials of providence, and we define providence as follows. Providence is God's upholding, directing, and supplying for all he has created according to his decree, which encompasses all things. And to the end, he has determined for each one of his creatures. Let me read that again. Providence is God's upholding, directing, and supplying for all he has created according to his decree, which encompasses all things. And to the end, he has determined for each one of his creatures. Now, if that's too dense for you, then perhaps John Piper's definition is helpful, where he calls providence God's purposeful sovereignty. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. And in the first sermon, we looked at Isaiah chapter 46 to learn the essentials of providence. And we learned three things that are essential to understanding providence. First, Isaiah showed us the author of providence, that it is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the author of providence. And that if we would understand providence, we must first savingly know the God behind providence. Secondly, we learned the foundation of providence, that it was God's decree made before the foundation of the world that encompasses absolutely everything that is the foundation of providence. And then thirdly, we learned about the sovereignty of providence, that providence is the outworking in time of God's decree made before time. And that by logical necessity, providence encompasses absolutely everything. We saw in Isaiah 46, it encompasses the rise and fall of nations. And we learn from our Lord himself that it encompasses the very hairs that fall from our head. So in the first sermon, we looked at, looked at the essentials of providence. In today's sermon, we're going to consider the goal of providence and we're going to see that across redemptive history, there is an overarching goal that God's providence is working all things to. And it is necessary to understand this goal if we would understand the doctrine of God's providence. And we're going to learn about it from Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So just to set the context, this is the first public sermon of the New Covenant Church. Jesus Christ, after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And he said, I'm going to send you the promise of the Holy Spirit that you are to wait in Jerusalem until you were clothed with power from on high. And so it was no accident that it was at the festival of Pentecost, the festival that was commanded in the Old Testament, where Jews from all over the world would be gathered in Jerusalem. It was no accident that it was at Pentecost that Jesus Christ would fulfill that promise. And so he poured out his spirit upon his disciples who were all gathered in one place and they began speaking miraculously in other tongues. And Jews from all nations of the earth were gathered there and they said, what is this? We hear these Jewish, these uh, Jerusalem disciples speaking in our own tongues. What can this mean? And so Peter took the opportunity and he stands up and begins to preach to them. And he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And he says that that prophecy is being fulfilled in their midst, where God promised in the last days, I will pour forth my spirit upon all flesh, upon mothers and fathers, upon male servants and female servants, and even upon sons and daughters. 
And so Peter sets the stage for the first sermon, first public sermon of the New Covenant Church. Now, what is the tone of Peter's sermon? This time of year in my workplace, uh, the tone or the, the vibe or the ethos of my workplace, I think you can call an angsty urgency. There's a angst about farming because there's so much at stake. But there's also an urgency about it because there's very limited time to get things done that you need to get done. Now, I think angsty urgency aptly summarizes the tone of Peter's sermon. It's angsty because there is so much at stake. He's publicly proclaiming the gospel of God to the, to the very ones who had crucified the Son of God. But this Son of God did not stay dead, but he was raised. And he is at the right hand of the Father. And he is extending the offer of reconciliation and forgiveness to the very ones that had killed him. It's angsty. There's much at stake. But it's also urgent because when the gospel is proclaimed in its clarity and in its light, it leaves absolutely no excuse. You cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ forces you to deal with him. You either bend the knee to him or you reject him. And hence, Peter's sermon is urgent. They must repent and they must repent now. That is the tone of Peter's sermon. So what is the main thrust or the main idea of Peter's sermon? Well, I would submit to you that it is this, that the goal of providence is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of providence is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ first and his death upon the cross where he was exalted on the cross. Secondly, in his resurrection from the grave. And thirdly, in his ascension and in his future return. The goal of providence is the exaltation of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and in his ascension and future return. And the main application of Peter's sermon is this, that the people of God would entrust themselves to the very Jesus that providence has exalted as Lord and as Savior. So let's look at Peter's sermon in more detail. First, in verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Peter shows us a varied providence in the cross of Jesus. Peter shows us a varied providence in the cross of Jesus. Look at verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. In other words, men of Israel, pay attention to my teaching because I'm going to proclaim to you the very word of God. Pay close attention. And then he goes, he uh, addresses the, the main subject, the main person of his sermon. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, at the end of his discourse, he says that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And those are the proper titles of Jesus. But he addresses, he addresses the Jews as they knew Jesus to be as the one from Nazareth, the place of which Nathanael said, can anything good come from Nazareth? The Jews had a very low estimation of Jesus. But even though the Jews had a low estimation of Jesus, God had a very high estimation of Jesus. 
Peter goes on. He says that he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, even though he was known by you Jews as the rabbi from the backwater town of Nazareth, he was a man attested by God. What does that mean? It means what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 6, that on the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. He has set him forth as the Messiah. And how did he do this? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Christ, through Jesus, in the midst of the Jews. Now we need to understand the weight of what Peter is asserting. The Jews understood what Peter was asserting because Moses had laid down in Deuteronomy two tests that the Israelites were to use when examining new revelation and when examining a new prophet. Now you can find these tests. You don't need to turn there in Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 18. But in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the first test that Moses gives Israel is a theological test. If a prophet comes among the people of Israel... And the new revelation that he gives contradicts previous revelation. He is to be rejected. He is not from Yahweh. The first test is theological. Does his message line up with the previous words of God? The second test in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is predictive. And the test that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 18 is that what the prophet prophesies doesn't come to pass. If he says that this is going to happen in the future and it doesn't, then he's a liar. And the people of Israel need pay no attention to him. So Moses gave Israel two tests, a theological test and a predictive test. And what Peter is asserting here is that Jesus of Nazareth passed both of those tests. His message lined up theologically not only with the entire Old Testament, but he fulfilled the theology of the Old Testament in his person and in his work. And Jesus also passed the predictive test. He himself proclaimed his own resurrection. He said that by his own power, he would be raised from the dead. And he did. And the apostles were witnesses of it. Let us not miss what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying that Yahweh certified Jesus as from him. But he also doesn't leave the Jews guiltless in this matter. At the end of verse 22, he says, As you yourselves know. Elsewhere, when Peter is preaching to the Jews, he will say that, they crucified Jesus in ignorance. So I don't think Peter is saying here that they fully understood the person and work of Jesus uh, because Paul says elsewhere that if the rulers of this age had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But nevertheless, they could not deny that the power of God was with Jesus because it was visibly manifested by the miracles of that he wrought. And he actually takes this realization of the Jews, Peter does, and he presses home their guilt. Look at verse 23, at the end of verse 23. He says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
This Jesus who is certified by Yahweh, you killed. You killed a messenger of the Most High God. You delivered him over to the Gentiles and had him murdered. But before Peter brings the charge of murder against the Jews, he adds a qualifier at the beginning of verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So in other words, what Peter is asserting here is that behind the plan of the Jews was the plan of God. That behind the purposes of the Jews was the permission of God. That behind the sin of the Jews was the providence of God. And Peter uses two two words here to describe God's activity in the death of his son. He says that he was delivered up. So God was the one who delivered Jesus over. In other words, God delivered or gave him up, and the Jews took him up. He says that God delivered him up according to his definite plan. Now that word definite, your uh, translation of scripture might say predetermined or predestined. Uh, in, In the original Greek, it's where we get our word horizon from. And so the word itself denotes a boundary marker being being placed. And he says definite plan. And that word plan or counsel or will is used in the New Testament to talk about the counsel of God made before the foundation of the world. Like we spoke about in the last sermon, the decree of God. And so don't miss what Peter is asserting here. He's saying that Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and decree of God. It was not God's plan B. And then he says he was also delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, that word foreknowledge is misunderstood in the church in America. Uh, it, It does not denote God's knowing of events beforehand, although that is true because God is omniscient. But when that word foreknowledge is used in the New Testament, as it is used also in the Old Testament, it denotes God's relation to people beforehand. When it comes to salvation and Romans 8, they are foreknown. As John Murray says, we could translate that for loved. And Peter says in 1 Peter, in his first letter, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means he existed before the foundation of the world. And that God the Father had a loving, intimate relationship with his Son before creation. And so what Peter is asserting here is that God decreed the very death of his Son, the Son of his love, the Son that he knew before before all things were created. That is what Peter is asserting here. But even though providence was sovereign over the death of Jesus... We dare not charge God with sin. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with that when they hear, when they think about the sovereignty of God. They think, how can God be sovereign, completely sovereign over sins and sinners, and yet not himself be guilty of sin? And the answer is, I don't know. But he isn't. It is a holy mystery that the scriptures teach. The scriptures do not ask us to comprehend that mystery. 
It commands us to apprehend it by faith, to receive it with a good conscience. Peter is clear about who is guilty here. The Jews were guilty of murder. But God in his providence was bringing his plan to pass. This is the Jesus that Peter proclaims, the Jesus foreknown before the foundation of the world, the Jesus attested by Yahweh as Messiah, the Jesus given over by Yahweh to death, and the Jesus taken sinfully by the Jews and crucified. This is a varied providence and the cross of Jesus. I've used this illustration before, but John Adams was serving as the ambassador to the Dutch during the Revolutionary War. And up to that point in his life, it was probably the most difficult assignment that he had received. Uh, Personally and emotionally, uh, he was isolated from his family, and the only family member with him was his young son. And so it was a very emotionally difficult time for him. Uh, Politically, it was difficult because the Dutch didn't want to acknowledge the United States and their cause against Britain. And so he often got the cold shoulder. Um, And nationally, it was difficult because he was thousands of miles removed from his homeland. And he often got news of the war months um, after the event itself. It was a difficult time for him. And so you can imagine his joy when he received word that Great Britain had surrendered and that the Dutch would formally recognize the new United States of America. And as he looked back on all that had happened during the Revolutionary War, this is what he wrote. He said, it is the result of a vast number and variety of events comprising the great scheme of providence. When I recollect the circumstances, I am amazed and feel that it is no work of mine. What's John Adams saying? He's saying that there's a texture and a variety to providence. And we see that in Peter's point here in verses 22 and 23. We've already said it, but for one, God's providence is sovereign in such a way that he can work even the worst of sins to good. It's the same principle that Joseph told his brother so many centuries earlier. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And in that, we see the justice and the grace of God magnified that he can be sovereign in such a way. The second thing it teaches us about providence is that providence is unconventional and unguessable. Providence is unconventional and unguessable. The Apostle Paul declared that the crucifixion of the Son of God was the mystery of God. His partially revealed plan now fully made manifest. Absolutely nobody could have guessed that. Even the prophets themselves that prophesied about the grace that was to be ours didn't fully understand it. Peter says that they searched and inquired carefully about the Christ. God's ways are unguessable. And they're also unconventional. The people of God fulfilled the plan of God by murdering the Son of God to bring the salvation of God. There is absolutely nothing else in history that can compare with that. Isaiah was correct when Yahweh spoke through him, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. 
truly, when we study providence, we see that, if anything, God is not bland and he is not boring. He is glorious. And his providential ways are intended to make our jaw drop and our knees bend. And then finally, providence is relieving and providence is frightening. For the saint, providence is relieving. Saint, it should be a comfort to your soul that providence is sovereign over the sins of men because you are in Christ Jesus and the God of providence has promised to work all things together for your good. If somebody has sinned grievously against you and injured you greatly, look to Christ. Providence turned the sins of men for good for him and he promises to do it for you. But if you are not in Christ, if you are not a follower of Jesus, the providence of God should frighten you because God is sovereign even over your sin. And if you do not turn to Jesus, then providence will not work your sins to your good. He will work it to your destruction. Peter shows us first a varied providence in the cross of Jesus He shows us, secondly, a victorious providence and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 24. Death was not the end of the story for Jesus. Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The picture that Peter gives here is of death itself and birth pangs with the Messiah. And death is unable to contain the Messiah in its womb, and Jesus bursts forth, forever conquering death. And the evidence, the first line of evidence that Peter gives for the resurrection of Jesus here is Scripture. He takes his hearers back a thousand years to David's penning of Psalm 16. Look at verse, beginning in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, in the immediate context of Psalm 16, it's clear that what David is doing is he is expressing his confident faith in Yahweh. And that because he continually regards Yahweh in all of his ways, Yahweh is at his right hand, his source of protection and strength, that he knows that he will ultimately be delivered from death itself. That's clear that David is speaking of that in the original context. But we have to ask a question is David ultimately referring to himself in this psalm? Look at how he speaks of it. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. By, by Hades, that's a Greek translation of the Old Testament Sheol, which denoted the realm of the dead, where, where souls went after they died. And David says, you won't let my soul remain in Hades. And he says, and you won't let your Holy One see corruption. That's a very strong way to describe oneself as the Holy One of God. 
And he says, you won't let my body corrupt in the grave. So is David ultimately speaking of himself? Well, Peter answers this question for us. Look at verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So the answer is no. David is not ultimately speaking about himself. How do we know? Peter says, go to his tomb. His body has rotted in his tomb, and his soul is in Sheol. Sheol is not the same thing as Gehenna, hell. Sheol is the realm of the dead, where uh, souls uh, go to after death. So if David is not ultimately referring to himself, who is he speaking about? Peter continues in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have recorded for us God's covenant with David, what we call the Davidic covenant. And in that covenant, Yahweh swore to David that he would never lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And that by that covenant, Yahweh's throne in heaven would merge with David's throne on earth. And ultimately, it was through the future son of David, capital S, that the Messiah would come. So in other words, all the promises in the Old Covenant concerning the seed of the woman was going to be channeled and focused in the seed of David. The Messiah would come from David's loins, in other words. And what Peter is saying here is that as David meditated on this, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he prophesied about his future son, that he would be raised from the dead. And if you... Look at the Old Testament and you get the entire picture of what the Old Testament scriptures paint of the Messiah. They paint the picture of a Messiah who dies for sinners. If you look at Isaiah chapter 53, the servant of Yahweh would be crushed for his people. But he can't make substitute for sinners, make a substitution for sinners. He can't be the regal son of David. He can't be the Messiah who will usher in God's salvation if he stays dead. That doesn't make sense. And so David prophesies of the resurrection of the Messiah. So Peter, the first line of evidence he gives is Psalm chapter 16. He goes to Scripture. But he doesn't end there. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We, who's the we? Not only the apostles, but the entire company of the disciples, which up to this point was about 120 people. As the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to over 500 brothers. And so you can imagine a Jew sitting and listening to Peter's sermon. And as he's expounding Psalm 16, you can almost hear the Jew thinking to himself, well, you know, that's nice, David, that's your interpretation. But I disagree. It's not correct. But then... Peter says, I know it's correct because I saw Jesus rise from the dead. In other words, the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection certifies the truth that the entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus of Nazareth. 
And again, it is no accident that God and his providence ensured an abundance of eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Truly, our faith rests on historical reality, and that is to be a comfort for us. Now, what does the resurrection of Jesus reveal about the providence of God? I had a classmate in high school who suffered from a massive stroke when he was 14. And two days later, I went with my dad to Memorial Health in Savannah to visit him. And the stroke uh, was so bad, all he could do, he couldn't move. All he could do was lay in bed and cry. He, he, that's all he could do. So they took him to the children's hospital in, a, hospital in Atlanta. And about a year or so later, I went with some friends to visit him. Um, and you wouldn't believe his improvement. He uh, still didn't really have much coordination, but he could move. Uh, he was in a wheelchair. Um, he still couldn't speak. Um, but they had a picture of a keyboard, and he would point to each letter and spell out what he wanted to say. Um, he had made a great improvement, but he still had a long way to go, and it was questionable um, if he would ever fully recover. And then two years later, he walked down the aisle with his classmates, uh, graduating high school, um, fully recovered, and now he is a fully functioning member of society. His, his story is amazing. And that's like what we have here. We have a victorious providence in the bringing of God's Messiah. It was a seemingly impossible feat. If you read the Old Testament, the promises of God seemed to always be in jeopardy. And David himself knew the greatness of what God had promised him. His prayer in 2 Samuel 7, he says, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh, and what is my house, that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. It was in Psalm 2 that God said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And Dale Ralph Davis comments on this. Listen to what he says. He says, it was a puny 11 acres of real estate on the southeastern ridge of Jerusalem, referring to Zion, referring to Jerusalem before David conquered it. A puny 11 acres of real estate. God begins his visible kingdom in this world on a tiny banana-shaped hill in a provincial backwater called Judah. In other words, the Zion that God promised to set his king, Jesus Christ, was insignificant. It was puny. It was promised to an insignificant nation and to, up until that point, an in insignificant person in that nation. God plants his kingdom in weakness, but because God plants it, it will prove undefeatable. So like my friend, whose recovery seemed impossible, it seemed to defy all odds. So the advent, the death, and the resurrection of the Christ seemed to defy all odds. And this is a victorious providence. This is the wonder of providence, that God orchestrated all history, all nations, all things, 
that the Apostle Paul, when he meditated on it, he wrote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is a victorious providence in the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, as Peter concludes his sermon, we see a hidden providence in the enthronement of Jesus. We see a hidden providence in the enthronement of Jesus. Look at verse 33. Peter says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter is an eloquent preacher, and he is closing his sermon how it began. Remember, it began with the outpouring of the Spirit and the crowds being confused as to what is happening. And so Peter began to initially explain it at the beginning of his sermon, and now he's giving the full and final explanation of it at the end of the sermon. And he's saying that this Jesus, who was the Messiah, this Jesus who died, this Jesus who rose, is also the Jesus who ascended. They had watched him rise into the air until clouds, symbolic of the presence of God, took him out of their sight. He sat down at the right hand of Yahweh, at the right hand of God the Father. And Peter is saying the evidence of that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus has been appointed by the Father as the mediator through whom all salvific blessings would come. Now, I know you have often heard from this pulpit us speak about the covenant of redemption. And I don't doubt that some of you have asked, what in the world is that? The covenant of redemption is what the scriptures teach about a covenant within the members of the Trinity made before the foundation of the world concerning the salvation of God's elect. And in this covenant, God the Father gave a charge, a work to God the Son, that if he would be the new Adam, that if he would fulfill the condition of the covenant of works that Adam broke, that if he would be the Messiah, that if he would fulfill these conditions, God the Father would vindicate him and through him bring salvation to his people. And God the Son in this covenant willingly assumed these conditions. And God the Son took on flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. And what Peter is saying here is that in Jesus' resurrection, in his ascension, in his outpouring of the Spirit, you are witnessing the vindication of the Father to the Son. Jesus was so greatly vindicated because he was so greatly humiliated. His vindication from the Father was in proportion to the greatness of the wrath that he bore of the Father. Paul himself talks about this in Philippians 2, that he not only humbled himself by taking on flesh, but his humility was a downward spiral that went like this, culminating in his death on the cross. And what does God the Father do? He hyper-exalts him and bestows on him the name of the Lord so that every knee would bow and confess him to the glory of God the Father. That is what Peter is teaching here. And again, Peter asserts, or Peter proves his assertion with Scripture. 
do you see how saturated the New, the New Testament church was with Scripture? It's expository preaching. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Peter must like David. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is from Psalm 110 verse 1. And Psalm 110 is perhaps the most uh, quoted psalm in the New Testament. Understanding Psalm 110 is essential for understanding the person and work of Jesus. And if you actually go back to Psalm 110 and read it, it's helpful to see what David wrote in the original Hebrew. Remember, this is a Greek translation of it. And in verse 1, David overhears a conversation in heaven. And in verse 1, he says, Yahweh said to my Lord. The covenant name of God is used, Yahweh said to my Lord. The, the title Adon, where we get Adonai, Lord, is used. And so David hears, overhears this conversation between Yahweh and between somebody that David calls his Lord. Now we need, need to let the weight of that sink in. David was the king of Israel. Yahweh merged his throne with David's. David ruled with great authority in the name of God. And yet here's a figure even greater than David. Somebody that David himself calls Lord. And what does Yahweh say to this great figure? He says, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, David's throne on earth represented God's throne in heaven. In other words, he ruled in God's stead on earth. But David did not have the privilege to ascend into the heavens and to sit down at God's right hand in his very presence. He did not have that privilege. And if you continue on in Psalm 110, you see that this lordly figure is not only a king, but he's also a priest. Because it says, Yahweh has sworn it will not change his mind. You, that lordly king, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you have, in Psalm 110, a merging of two distinct offices in the Old Testament. The office of king and the office of priest. They were distinct in the Old Testament. And here's David saying, they're going to be merged in this lordly figure whom he did not see clearly. And Peter is saying, this new priest, this lord of David, who is also David's son, is none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you can hear the Jew asking, well, how do you know? Because Peter saw him be raised from the dead. Everything in Peter's sermon hinges on the reliability of the resurrection. So Peter here asserts that Jesus of Nazareth was not only crucified, was not only raised, did not only ascend, but was seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is reigning now until the Father makes all of Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. 
And so Peter concludes the sermon in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, let every single Jew know this for certain, that there is no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, that he is Yahweh come down in the flesh, and that this one bestowed, uh, who was bestowed with such honor from God is the very one you put to death. He closes the sermon with a piercing conviction. Now, why do I call this a hidden providence in the enthronement of Jesus? I've said earlier that Peter's entire sermon rests on the reliability of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. I call it a hidden providence because even though the apostles witnessed Jesus rise again from the dead, you and I did not. And even though the apostles saw him ascend, Jesus was taken by a cloud, the presence of God. They didn't actually see with their eyes Jesus sit down at God's right hand. And you may think that I'm just quibbling about words, but the New Testament picks up on this truth. The book of Hebrews says, but we do not yet see all things subject to him. Peter himself wrote in his first letter, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. I call it a hidden providence because God the Father has exalted God the Son in a way that is hidden from our eyes. And I think providence here teaches us a colossal truth, that the truth of God can only be understood savingly with the eyes of faith, not with the physical eyes. God throughout redemptive history was revealed in theophanies, uh, re revealed his power in miracles, and many people saw this, but they didn't believe. It didn't benefit them to see with their eyes. It would only benefit them to see with the eyes of faith. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus have eyewitnesses to his resurrection. It was not absolutely necessary that those eyewitnesses be us. What is necessary is that we take God at his word. What is necessary is that we believe the testimony of the apostles. And I think this truth has even more implications for us. Uh, William Dyke was a, a man who lived in England uh, in the 19th and 20th century. And William Dyke suffered a, a major accident when he was 10 years old. Uh, he was blinded in both of his eyes. And even though he was blinded, um, he didn't let it stop him. He was very smart, and he actually had a very distinguishing intellectual career as an adult. And in the course of time, he met a woman, and he fell in love, and they were to be wed. 
and he loved her, but he just couldn't handle not being able to see her. And so he found a doctor in England who performed a trial surgery on his eyes to see if he could regain his sight. And on the very day of the wedding in 1900, the bandages on his eyes were removed for the first time and he saw his bride walking down the aisle. The surgery was successful. I think what's important in that story for us is this, that William Dyke loved his bride before he saw her and that seeing her brought that love to a consummation. We often struggle with providence because its ways are hidden from us. Providence sometimes does not make sense to us and it sometimes bruises us and bruises us deeply. And we secretly question in our heart, Lord, why, what are you doing? But this truth teaches us that we don't have to have the answers to those questions. We don't have to have that weight on our back. We simply must interpret providence with the eyes of faith. And God himself gives us that interpretation in Romans 8, verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. As the Apostle Paul would write, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Dear Christian, you do not see the lover of your soul now, but you do love him. And one day he will return very soon and you will see him with your eyes. And the very hands of Jesus will wipe away the tears caused by the bruises of providence. And you will be reconciled to your Savior forever and ever. This is a hidden providence and the enthronement of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God of providence. And though your providential ways puzzle us, although providence sometimes doesn't always smile, but frowns, we know that the storm clouds that we so much dread will break with rich blessings upon our head. Father, help us to Interpret your providence by your love for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to love our Savior more. Father, give us perseverance that we would look with great anticipation for that day when he descends from heaven with the cry of command. And when we are raised imperishable so that we will always be with the Lord. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, if you will stand and please.